uh, Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. Join me in reading this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under no obligation, I am under obligation, rather, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the word of the Lord. Today, as we begin our journey uh, through the book of Romans, I, I just want to preface all of this by saying that uh, this is probably going to take us around seven months to get through the book, and that's actually a fairly short time frame for teaching through the book of Romans, and so our challenge is going to be in mining the theological depths of Romans without getting bogged down. I think probably even in today's text, you can see right off the bat that there is a richness to Paul's writing, and there is a lot that we could parse out and spend a great deal of time on. Um, I'll mention just real quick that earlier this week, we did send out a couple of tools in our weekly email that I think are worth you checking out. Uh, the first one is a video that's by the Bible Project, and I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. They put out some really great materials. Um, and it's just an overview of the first four chapters of Romans. And so if you haven't watched it yet, uh, when we're done this morning, take just a few minutes, go to YouTube and search Romans 1-4. And it's going to be the first video that comes up for you. So check that out. And I'm going to try to regularly send out some tools that will be helpful to you because we're simply not going to have a ton of time to dig deeply into things like the life of Paul or the cultural history of Rome. 
So if you want to go deeper, we're going to try to recommend some good resources along the way. The second tool is the ESV Romans Scripture Journal. That's in the email also. And it, it, you don't have to have this specific scripture journal, but it is, it is really nice. And, and you can find it online for just three or four bucks. Uh, you can go to Amazon and get it or any of those kinds of places. And um, it's great because on one page, it'll have the actual text of scripture. On the other page, um, it's lined so that you can take notes. And my primary hope in all of that is that you would take notes as we walk through this book um, and that you would just keep them somewhere where you can keep up with them and uh, hopefully turn back to them at some point in time. So let me encourage you in that. And again, that's called the ESV Scripture Journal. And if for some reason you're not on our weekly emails, you can go to covenantshreveport.org and click Get Updates at the top of the page and just subscribe to our email list there. And we'll try to keep you posted on all of that. So Romans is perhaps the most complete and cohesive theological treatise in the entire Bible. Uh, Paul really was a master at presenting a doctrinal case. But sometimes, and I think we even see this in our text this morning, sometimes his language can be a bit difficult to crack. Even the very beginning of chapter one, it's, it's just one long kind of run-on sentence. Um, and sometimes as you're reading through the writing of Paul, but particularly here in Romans, you will have these like, I need to read that again type moments. And let me encourage you to kind of seize those moments to go back and read some of this over and over again. Each week we'll send out our text for the week in advance so that you can just spend some time in it, kind of digesting it. So hopefully the first time you hear it is not during our worship gathering. Um, and I don't think that Paul, in he, as he was writing Romans, that he was intending to like fully unpack his entire the, theological system, but yet he does talk about a myriad of things. He obviously talks about the gospel. He talks about the atonement of Jesus. He talks about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, he talks about the purpose and function of the Old Testament law in a post-resurrection age. Uh, he talks about justification by faith. He talks about the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, on and on and on. All of these things are found in this one book, and so we have a lot to get through together. Paul was not writing to the city of Rome, per se, and he wasn't writing to just Romans in general, uh, but instead Paul was writing specifically to the church in Rome, as we see today. He was writing to Christian believers. This book is actually a letter. It's not just a document that was sent out. It's not like a uh, theological commentary that was just sent out to churches. This is a letter, uh, or what's known as an epistle in the New Testament. Um, and sometimes as you're reading it, you can forget that this is basically correspondence um, because it is so deep and it is so rich. Um, this was probably only written maybe 25 to 30 years after Jesus's resurrection. And so it's astounding that even in just a, a short couple of decades, the church in Rome had already become established to the point where Paul says that the things that are happening through the church in Rome are already being proclaimed around the world. So very quickly, the message of the gospel was taken to Rome, 
probably by converted Jews, although we don't know exactly who started the church in Rome. Um, if you come from a Roman Catholic position, it, it, it's possible that you've heard before that Peter started the church in Rome, but there, there's really no good historical evidence to affirm that. Um, and it doesn't really matter. What we know is that believers um, who were followers of Christ took the gospel back to the city of Rome, probably from Jerusalem, and the church was established there, and the church was zealous for the way of Christ. Even though it was started more than likely by converted Jews, very quickly the primary members of the Roman church became Gentiles, which is just another word for non-Jewish people. And so as you can imagine, there suddenly arose a great deal of tension between the Jews and these Gentile converts. And this is something that Paul will ultimately address in this letter. In today's text, though, Paul is simply introducing himself, as you see. He was probably not a well-known commodity to the Roman church. When they received the letter from Paul, there probably was not this sense of, oh, this is Paul. We know who this is. Um, so as you read this, there is a little bit of a sense of Paul is not only introducing himself, but he is seeking to explain himself as well and explain who he is. We learned that Paul had long desired to make his way to Rome, which was really the center of the developed world at this point in time. The Roman Empire itself was massive. I mean, it spanned this enormous distance, both east and uh, to the north and even down into Africa. The Roman Empire was um, expansive and was constantly kind of spreading out even more and more. Paul, more than likely, though, did not see Rome as his, like, ultimate destination, but rather as maybe a great potential place to have a home base for his continuing ministry. Uh, we learn later, towards the end of this book, chapter 15, that really Paul had his sights set on going to Spain and, and going on up into Europe and into, like, the Iberian Peninsula. And um, I think Paul believed that Rome was going to be a great location for him to take all of these different missionary journeys. And because the church in Rome had become established, potentially they would be in a position to help him with those mission endeavors, maybe both financially and in terms of manpower. But before he could even get there, either physically or even kind of win favor with the church in Rome, he had to establish himself with them first. He had to sort of validate himself to them. And he has to make sure that the gospel that he's preaching is also what they believe. Because early on in the church, since there was not a lot of centrality um, in terms of authority within the church and a great way to pass along um, mandates or messages or teachings, um, very quickly in the early church, there were a lot of false gospels that rose up that the church had to respond to. And so Paul wanted to preach the gospel to them and, and also make sure that the gospel they believed was what he was preaching. So we see here that it was clear that Paul had been pre prevented from going. We don't know exactly what specifically had prevent him, prevented him from going to Rome. He had been on a number of missionary journeys at this point. He was probably writing this letter from the city of Corinth, um, which is uh, where he had established a church. He also wrote letters to the church in Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Corinth was about 700 miles away from Rome. And um, at least initially, 
Paul's seeking to say, here's who I am. I'm an apostle. I'm like these other guys you've maybe heard of, guys like James and John. I've wanted to come visit you for a long time. And not because I hear Rome's just a great destination, but because I desire to preach the gospel to you. And that takes us to what is really, I think, a thesis statement for this entire book. Look with me at verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul's enduring and sincere belief is that the gospel of Jesus is the most important thing that anyone could ever hear. And it's not simply because it's good news, like a good story of something that's been done for us. Paul believes, as he says here, that in the gospel, we see and experience God's power. He says the gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes. So it's not just an account. It's not just a story. The gospel is God's power to save everyone who believes. And this belief had come to shape the life of Paul, making him at this point, and and even perhaps today as well, the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen. He, He was the greatest missionary, not simply because he went to a lot of places, even though he did, it it had more to do with his just unabashed nature. It, It had to do with the fact that no matter where he was, he was proclaiming the gospel. No matter what situation he found himself in, he was proclaiming the gospel. He was not waiting for the circumstances to be perfect in order to proclaim the gospel. Many of us are waiting for the circumstances to be perfect. We're waiting for another person to ask the right question that we can respond to, or we're waiting for the opportune moment, or we're waiting for things to not seem awkward in any way, shape, or form. However, what Paul modeled for us was whether you're shipwrecked or you're bitten by a poisonous snake, or you're in jail, or you're before like a tribunal, um, it doesn't matter no matter where you are, the gospel is worth proclaiming because it is the power of God. It's not just a story. It is the power of God to save everyone who believes. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And when he says that, I think it should naturally provoke in us the question, am I ashamed of the gospel? Like when we look at the life of Paul, he demonstrated what it looked like to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And as we read the account, not only here in Romans, but in many of the other New Testament letters that he wrote, as we read the account of his life, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, man, is is that what I'm aspiring to? Or am I kind of cowering back in the shadows? Am I, am I greatly worried or greatly fearful about how the gospel will be perceived or received by people that I would potentially present it to? Am I in some way ashamed of it? The church in Rome had no power really at this point in time in, in like a socio-political sense. In fact, not long before this letter was written, the emperor of Rome had actually expelled the Jews from the city for a season. 
Um, and, and supposedly that had happened because of the uproar that Christianity was causing in the city. So there was a sense in which the church recognized that if we are too in, if we're in everybody's face too much, then this, this really could affect us ne negatively. Already persecution was starting. Already people were starting to be killed for their faith. Already people were being exiled and um, expelled from their homes and the cities in which they live because of their faith. And so Paul's boldness in declaring the gospel kind of flew in the face of any notions of self-preservation or hiding in the shadows. Now, because Christ is alive and because this good news that comes out of his life, his death and resurrection, because it is the power of salvation, and Paul's mindset is no one's going to stop me talking about this. I don't really care what the social ramifications are. I don't even care if I die as a result of this. Because of what I believe to be true, no one's going to stop me. Notice also that Paul sees the gospel as being for all people. This is verse 16. He says, it's for the Jew first. It's also for the Greek. Now, Paul was a Jew by heritage. In fact, Paul had been raised as a Pharisee, which was an elite member of religious society. He was also a Roman citizen. In fact, Paul was his Romanized name. His, his Jewish name was Saul, which was a great Jewish name for Jewish boys to be named after King Saul, the first king of Israel. And Jesus was the long prophesied Messiah to the Jews. But Paul says, yeah, but he's not just for the Jews. And, and you know, there would have been many Christian Jews at this point who, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and who would have agreed with Paul that Yes, Jesus is not only for the Jews, he is also for the Gentiles as well. Many of them would have agreed with him on that point, but then they would have added, as long as the Gentiles become Jews first, right? The mindset that many people had was that in order to follow the king of the Jews, you have to first be a Jew and observe Jewish law. And, and this is just the first glimpse we get of Paul saying, no, that's actually not true. That's actually not how this works. Gentiles don't have to first become observant Jews for the power of the gospel to save them. You don't have to become something first in order for the gospel to work or in order for the gospel to be effectual in your life. And the same thing is true today. You don't have to become something yourself first or make yourself something in order for the gospel to have power in your life. So, so why is that? Why is that? Well, it's verse 17. It's because the power of the gospel is rooted in the righteousness of God. It's not rooted in your righteousness. It's not rooted in your good work or your ability to do anything. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. The gospel is not powerful to save you because of who you are. It's because of who Christ is. And that's always been true. And, and throughout the ages, not only here during the time of Paul, but throughout the centuries, people have sought to add things to the gospel or put things in front of the gospel. And they've start, sought to add maybe hurdles that you have to be this or you have to do this in order for the gospel to somehow have power in your life. But Paul 
disavows all of that. He throws all of that out the window and he says, no, no, no. The only thing that you need for the gospel to be effective is you need a risen savior. All you need is Christ and his power. It is because of who he is that salvation is real and that hope is available to us. So becoming or not becoming something really has no bearing because the power of the gospel is not in any way based on you. It's based solely on God himself. That's incredible news. Like that's, that's the best news that we could possibly hear. And so Paul is, is kind of coming out of the gate guns blazing here. He's saying, yeah, yeah, here's who I am, but, but let, me, let me get to the real stuff. Let me get to the gospel. And the final statement in today's text is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And it's this quote, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. I, I think many of us hear that and we think Paul is saying something that he's actually not saying. I think what we hear, what we think he's saying is that if I am a righteous person, then as I go about my everyday life, I'm going to live my life by the principles of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Um, I'm going to live by faith, almost like saying I'm going to live by a moral code or I'm going to live by a Christian value system. But that's not really what Paul's saying here. What he's quoting is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And the text he's quoting actually says, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. In other words, faith isn't simply a value system that you live your life by. No, faith in the gospel of Christ is what makes you live. Let me, let me say that again. Faith isn't simply a value system that we live by or a moral code that we ascribe to. Faith in the gospel of Christ is what makes you live. This is why Jesus uses all of this language of rebirth. You must be born again. It is faith in his good work, in his resurrection, in the life that he offers us that allows us to live. It's what makes us reborn into this living hope. It's not just something we live our life by, even though we do. It is through it that we live. So what's interesting about the Greek language and translating the Greek language into English is that you not only have to figure out what individual words would mean in the English, and sometimes that's super challenging in and of itself, but you also have to deal with word order because Greek sentences are not ordered in the same way that we would naturally order the words in a sentence in English. And so you have to kind of rearrange the words and so in such a way that they remain true to the original intention, but also are somewhat readable in English. And I think actually a better way of stating Romans 1.17 is this. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. I actually think that's a better rendering of the original Greek text that really gets to the heart of what Paul is saying here, which is this. You are not righteous on your own. Your righteousness is not something you've done. 
It's not something you've achieved for yourself. This is why it's of no real value to you to just be Jewish. It doesn't buy you anything. You don't like receive righteousness simply because you are Jewish. You receive righteousness through faith in Christ. It's actually his righteousness that is given to you. It's imputed to you. It's like laid on top of you. The one who by faith is righteous shall live because you have been made righteous by Christ, because of Christ, through the power of Christ. You shall live because when you've come before a holy God at a moment of judgment, God will see the righteousness of Christ and not the filthy rags of unrighteousness that are present in your life. And so the righteous shall live by faith forever, not just here in the present moment, but forever, eternally, in the family of God as beloved sons and daughters of the King. I hope that makes sense. We aren't righteous on our own. We are only righteous because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gives his righteousness to us and cleanses our sins and gives us rebirth and makes us new. Even though we die, we live because of Christ. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus and his power. So if these things are true, guys, how could a person ever be ashamed of this? Right? If this is real for you, if you will literally live forever in the family of the creator of all things as, as an heir, like as a beloved son or daughter, as a co-heir with Christ even, if all of that is true, how could you ever not speak of it to other people? How could you ever be hamstrung by being worried about awkwardness or how people will receive it or how people will respond to you? This is, this is where Paul's at. Because he so believes this is real, it has brought him to this completely unabashed, unashamed place. If these things are true, how could you ever keep your mouth shut? And with that in mind, let us pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ, and we thank you for a chance to have access to your holy word so that we might know you, not just intellectually, but personally so that we might not just learn more about you, but Father, so that we might become more like you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth this morning, and help us to see that the gospel is not something to be ashamed of in any way. It's not something to shut up about in any way, but instead it is something that should exude from our lives and radiate from us, so that we might be a city on a hill and the salt of the earth. Help us in this season when we are separated physically in many ways from each other. Help us in this season to, God, understand how we do that well. What does it look like? What are the most effective things that we could be doing as the church to truly declare and demonstrate your gospel to the watching world? Help us have insight and wisdom for that, Father. Help us to live unashamed lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.